Welcome to the I Am Podcast. My name is Carl Weaver, and I am the website content manager at I Am. If you have any suggestions for the I Am Podcast, you can email me at carl.weaver at iamovers.org. Please subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Spotify. Uh, welcome back to the I Am uh, podcast. Today is November 12th, and I am joined this week by Brian Limpropoulos, our Vice President. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Carl. How are you? I'm great, thanks. I, I, you know, I got some really good news in the email this morning I wanted to share with you. Where's that? I, uh, it turns out that I am, uh, I've been personally selected to receive a sum of $10 million from a widow of a Libyan prince who's passed away. So I, I, I should be getting the money in my, in my uh, bank account this afternoon, they said. Uh, so I'll, I'll keep you updated. But, you know, this may be the end of the podcast if it happens. I don't know uh, what to say about that. Well, I have two questions. First, uh, yeah, I was going to go there. I was going to ask about your continued uh, service to the association, given your recent financial windfall. But, um, but I was also wondering, uh, you know, if you can you know, throw me a few bones, uh, you know, just, just help a brother out and uh, take care of my mortgage a bit. That would be helpful. <laughs> yeah, I'll see what I can do. Yeah, things are very tight right now. So yeah, yeah, well, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta look out for yourself, you know, you know, make sure you don't go into that, uh, you know, spend yourself crazy, uh, trying to stock up your liquor cabinet to uh, distract yourselves from uh, the craziness of the US election and COVID. So I, I understand that. Yeah, I already put an order in on a helicopter, so we'll see how this goes. Anyway, That's always on, a good investment, those helicopters. <laughs> on to the uh, news. Uh, so the IAM, the virtual annual meeting, Brian, that, that's been over for a few weeks, but the sessions are still available through November 25th, and people can still register to get that. Is that correct? Yeah, and it's not just the sessions, right? It's uh, the whole platform. So I can still go on. I have a meeting on... Monday with one of our members on their roundtable, so one of our exhibitors. So people can still use it as a business tool to connect um, with each other. They can use it to, you know, learn from our great sessions. And, you know, Carl, you know, in the e-portal that we circulated yesterday, you, you have the words, you weren't in the room where it happened. And I think for a lot of people who attended the conference, the virtual conference, there was a lot of skepticism. And you know, we, as a staff, we reviewed the survey data, the post-conference survey data this past week. And I, I mean, it was glowing remarks. And it was a lot of like, well, uh, I am, we had very low expectations coming into this and you guys knocked it out of the park. And usually I'm not one to trumpet what we did, but I, I'm so proud of what we were able to achieve and the value we were able to deliver to the to the members. So I really encourage everybody to check out that, that opportunity to come back in. And if you didn't register, there's so much good content on there, you know, in terms of uh, learning from corporate uh, HR people, you know, what, what are they looking for in service providers, RMCs, um, you know, kind of best practices for claims management, all sorts of stuff. RPP, I mean, it runs the gamut. We had 
uh, about 25 different sessions and uh, you know all really really well done and that's where I, I think we will be bringing some of those sessions over but some of them you know I think you need to get in there right now and see where your business is at and learn from these people so it's a I, I really strongly encourage you to look at the information we included in the ePortal this week and see if it's right time to register for that. It's only available until November 25th. And it's only $249. Uh, and again, there's still people uh, on that system, on the swap card system. So there is opportunity to pay that money and still do real business online, not just listen to the old sessions. That's right. You, you can go to, to register for this. You can go to iammeetings.com and uh, they can walk you through the registration process and you can get instant access to all these sessions and networking opportunities. And we had about 900 people on the platform. So those are 900 potential connections um, you know, that, that you can reach out to. Um, so I, I definitely encourage you to do it. Yeah, and I was very heartened, you know, it, it, going into it, you know, we had a lot of faith and that's sort of what we're running on, like leading up to the conference, like, I think it's going to work. And then it worked really well. And uh, like Brian was saying, we got, uh, most of our responses were things like, uh, absolutely, we're going to attend a virtual conference again, if it's available. Or, you know, there's some mix of, yeah, I'd, I'd prefer the in-person conference, but even if I can go to that, I'm still going to have some of my office people uh, attend virtually if that's yeah. an option. And Absolutely. Still, yeah, we're still shaping up what next year is going to look like. And we don't, honestly, we don't know what next year is going to look like in terms of the pandemic and all this other stuff going on. Uh, but that's right, Carl. And yeah, we will be in Orlando next year. Uh, we will, I, I think this swap card platform or something very similar will be a part of our face to face conference going mm -hmm. forward. And uh, I think our focus on content, you know, IAM's never really been seen as a place to learn. Um, but, you know, we're now two years into the development of I Am Learning. Uh, and this virtual conference was an outstanding learning experience. Like, I don't say that lightly. I'm not somebody who can uh, really uh, kind of sell uh, if I don't believe in it. It was an outstanding learning opportunity this year. And the plaudits that we've received from members after the fact um, have just been so encouraging. So we are just totally leaning into this whole uh, content and just augmenting you know, what, what we typically deliver to the members, which is really focused on networking. We're gonna be adding this whole content and learning aspect to our conferences going forward. And as Carl said, you, you'll be able to give your office staff who can't travel or it's too costly for them to travel to the conference, they'll be able to join the virtual annual meeting and potentially learn and network with people at the conference as well as those tuning in from around the world. It's a big, big uh, innovation for our conference for the future. Yeah, very exciting stuff and very uh, democratizing for our association members too. Or the, um, you know, the members who maybe are too busy working or don't maybe don't think it's worth the investment to spend three to $5,000 to go to the meeting in person can now participate. Uh, and we even had remote voting at the various uh, meetings 
you know, the uh, core members meeting and, and executive meeting. So we've figured out a lot of stuff and, and not that we're the programmers, but you know, we, we found a really good tool to help us out. Well, speaking of democratizing, I love that word. You know, we have a, uh, a session coming up tonight, IEN's Asia Hour. And um, there was a little bit of a typo on the ePortal. It is November 12th, you know, depending on your time zone. So here in the Eastern time zone of the uh, United States where Carl and I are, are recording, it will be November 12th when we go live uh, with the Asia Hour. For most, um, most people though, uh, in the Eastern hemisphere, you know, those in Europe, Africa, Asia, uh, the Pacific region, it will be November 13th. And I say it's democratizing because typically we have sessions that are on US or European time zones. And this is really explicitly geared towards uh, having an event that's in Asian or Asia Pacific time zone. So that's, uh, I, Carl, when you say democratizing, that's, that really comes to mind. So we're, we're, we're looking forward to that session tonight and learning and engaging our, you know, our people who are typically asleep when we're doing some of these things, you know, being able to meet them in their own time zone. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing. Um, you know, just being able to, you know, I mean, we're an international association. We should be able to bring content to people sure. uh, when they can have it. And something nice is that even if you miss it, uh, it will be recorded. It will be on I Am, I am Learning. So yeah, missing it tonight doesn't mean that you've missed it entirely. And just to get a sense, like, what will be, it, it's going to be mostly kind of like a networking type, you know, kind of collaborative interchange of ideas and thoughts. So it's really just going to be an hour to discuss, you know, what's going on in the industry. And we'll talk about some of these things in, in our next kind of uh, segment. Uh, you know, what's going on in the industry and how I am can maybe, you know, facilitate connection and learning and collaboration better for our members in that region. So yeah, we, we encourage you to join. Uh, again, there's a link in the ePortal for you to kind of click on and, and go to I Am Learning and register for that. Yeah. So Brian, with, there's a lot of stuff going on with container shortages and port congestion and supply chain issues. W what's all this stuff about? Yeah, so, um, and I'm not smart enough to talk about some of this stuff, but we, you know, there is a whole global supply chain disruption occurring right now, and it's due to COVID. I don't think any of this is a surprise, and we'd love, if there's somebody who's an expert on this, we'd love for them to come on the podcast and, and kind of contextualize it better than we can, uh, but, you know, we, we have a few different articles in the ePortal about the global container shortage. So, you know, with what's happening with COVID, uh, where, you know, shipping containers are located, where they're positioned, and uh, based on the shipping flows that typically take place, you know, we're looking at the busy Christmas buying season here in the U.S. You know, the U.S. is a consumer economy. And, you know, typically at this point, there are a lot of full containers going from Asia to the U.S. to fulfill those holiday orders. Well, what we're seeing right now is that there's a lot of empty containers, but they're not in Asia, they're elsewhere. And the shipping lines are really trying to 
reposition those containers and bring new can, uh, empty containers online in order, in order to fulfill those orders. So there's an article here um, from Hapag Lloyd, but then we go to the next one, Carl, which is, you know, what's going on in Sydney. And I talk about some of these empty shipping containers. Well, Sydney, a lot of these shipping lines are no longer accepting bookings to the port of Sydney. And why is that? There are a, there's a glut of empty shipping containers sitting at the port of Sydney. So again, you know, the first article is really geared around the global container shortage or the global container uh, positioning crisis. And then you, we see kind of a local impact. And, and our friends down at the Australian International Movers Association, specifically Phil Gordon with Conroy Removals, has been keeping us well up to date with that. So there are port congestion issues there. There are congestion fees surcharges associated with that. So if you have any shipments going to Sydney or Australia in the near future, you need to be aware of what's going on down under. And then finally, you know, it's really a look at the U.S. economy um, and just showing kind of how shipments and spending has increased in Q3. You know, I think as we talk about COVID, there's a lot of discussion about economic disruption. But here in the US, a lot of people are moving and a lot of people are buying things and there is a huge demand for um, uh, you know, final mile shipping, final mile delivery and all of that. And the trucking uh, capacity here is really tight and, and we're seeing it across the board. There's such demand for goods and people don't wanna be outside, they don't wanna go shopping and this is a really good article for you to kind of learn about what's going on here in the US. So all of these three issues are kind of interlinked with COVID and how it's driving consumer spending and, and driving this whole supply chain disruption worldwide. So these are things that you need to know in order to do your business and, and, and properly mitigate risk in the future. So we encourage you to look at those things. Yeah, very interesting stuff. A lot of uh, complex systems going on there with the, uh, you know, we need containers over here, but the containers are over there, but nobody's shipping anything and it's hard to get the containers back. And well, meanwhile, you know, I, someone wants a new TV here in the U.S. for Christmas or something or for a holiday gift. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of a delay possible. Definitely. And, and it will have implications in the future. Like, you know, Will U.S. companies begin to onshore manufacturing uh, to protect against this in the future? You know, if they miss out on a lot of orders, you know, and, and this is more, you know, higher level of economic activity, but this will have impacts on our corporate customers and how they choose to do business and where they choose to position their workforce. So the knock-on uh, developments of this whole crisis are, are going to be interesting to observe and monitor uh, over the next year, two, three years. Yeah, interesting stuff there. There's something else that's going on or that recently happened. This is at the annual meeting, the virtual meeting, is the young professionals raised a bunch of money for Move for Hunger. In fact, their goal was to uh, raise $1,000 and they've so far raised 2300 you can still donate. There's a donate link in the portal. 
But I thought this was a really neat thing. Um, you know, instead of uh, money going to sort of an entry fee for the game that they played, uh, they um, it was used to raise money for Move for Hunger. Is that correct? Yeah, and that's uh, that's just one of the benefits of doing stuff virtually is there's relatively lower cost so that we can ask our members now to donate to an organization that is having an, a, a great impact and uh, an organization that is raising the reputation of our industry, doing great work, helping people, uh, you know, in their time of desperation. So I, I really applaud the YPs for taking on that initiative and, you know, uh, having fun while doing it. It was a fun trivia competition. And uh, who, who won it, the competition, Brian? I mean, yeah, I don't want to brag, but yeah, <laughs> I, I took it down, and you know, I, I got I got the belt right now, and I'm I'm challenging anybody to come and come and get it. You know, come after me. Uh, I, there will be another event in the near future where we're seating our new YP board uh, right now and starting to set those plans in motion. But again, I applaud our our IAMYP, our young professionals for taking the lead on that and and making you know as we say here in the u.s making lemonade out of lemons uh you know this year we we couldn't do our fun social mixer in person so they did the next best thing and, and it was a, a fun event given the circumstances and food insecurity is a huge problem um, right now in the u.s for sure i know it's a huge problem all over the world uh, but right now, I know it's a, it's a really big problem uh, with COVID. You know, a lot of people can't go to work. A lot of people don't have much money because of that. Um, you know, it's a, it's a huge issue. So yeah. I, I always, uh, every time I talk to Adam Lowy, I think I thank him for the uh, good work that he's doing, important work that he's doing here. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you want to get have, you want to get meta on this? I, well, I was curious. Like, do we talk about it? Do we not talk about it? Yeah, let's do it. We're <laughs> going to talk about the IM podcast now. So yeah, buddy. On the virtual airways, and we've been going along since July doing this, and uh, we're bringing in. We're starting to bring in. Not only it started with me. I'll back up a little bit. It started me just like yammering on with a microphone and you know in a padded cell somewhere, and. And then, you know, we brought Brian on and we've had Chuck and uh, Dan, we roped uh, Dan uh, Bradley into doing some of this stuff. And we're sort of finding our feet now and we're starting to interview some members. A few weeks ago, I interviewed um, a couple of the uh, people from the DAB task force, the domestic acid-based movers. And we're gonna be doing more of this. So we're going to be bringing possibly even you, whoever you are listening right now, you can be on the podcast. We want to hear what's going on in your area, you know, what business challenges you have, what successes you're finding. And um, just, we want to get to know you better. So if you want to be on the podcast, you can email me, carl.weaver at iamovers.org. And we'll work out a time and a subject and, and we'll get on the www and have a conversation. Yeah, this is going to be a, a great opportunity to hear from members, learn about what they do. And, and I think our members want to hear from other members. You know, they all face the same challenges day in and day out. 
And uh, this is a great opportunity. And we're looking forward to exploring this. We want to hear what, even if you don't want to participate, let us know what topics you want to learn about. You know, Carl, I think one thing that we talked about was, you know, doing some discussions about mold and mildew. And, uh, you know, Carl is, you know, working on maybe having some industrial hygienist come on, you know, an expert in the field to talk to our members about how they can mitigate and potentially um, prevent mold and mildew from occurring. Yeah. So, and, yeah. I'm sorry. Also, you know, mold and mildew is one of those things where it all looks the same to us as consumers or as people, lay people uh, who see mold and mildew, like in the shower, maybe, or if you're, uh, you know, in some places everywhere. You know, I've certainly been in those hotel rooms. Uh, but, you know, it's not, mold and mildew is such a complicated thing because it's not one, it's not a singular thing. You know, there's like a million different types and some of it's really bad for you, but some of it's not really bad for you. So, but we don't know. We just get out the bleach solution and spray it and it's gone for a while and eventually we do it again. Um, you know, so getting someone on who can talk to us about what mold is and mildew and stuff like that, as well as uh, I'm talking to uh, a member who's, you know, um, in a, a very humid area who can talk to, uh, talk to us about what they do to prevent it and mitigate it as well. So that's, that's just one topic. I mean, yeah. we, we are ready to go down the rabbit hole wherever you guys want to go. Uh, you know, just as a standing point, you know, we want to be a member driven organization. And that starts with you letting us know what you want to learn about, what you want to hear about, and who you want to hear from. So, um, yeah, and we have contact a, Carl. <laughs> we have a lot of uh, ideas that we've generated and uh, that came out of our member needs survey and uh, stuff like that. So we've got a, a list of topics we're going to be discussing, but we also want to hear from you. So get in touch, let me know what you need. All right, we had some recent changes, Brian, in the IAM leadership. Uh, Mr. Tim Hellenthal of National Van Lines uh, stepped down as chair of the executive committee and we thank him for his uh, long, many years of service to the association. And sure, surely he's not going away. He's just not in the uh, he's not in the rearview mirror right now. So he's still back there. And we know we're always going to hear from him and be able to rely on him. So yeah, we will not escape Mr. Hellenthal's dad jokes. Uh, they will they will stay with us. Uh, but in all seriousness, Tim has been and uh, it's been a pleasure to uh, work for the association under his leadership. And uh, you know he's been uh, an outstanding leader for uh, the executive committee and the association as a whole. So we're, we're blessed to have him as a leader and now we're, we're welcoming in this new kind of group. And, and it's not a new group. Uh, Mike Richardson from Senate Forwarding is stepping up from vice chair to uh, assume the chairmanship of the executive committee. And then John Burroughs from DeWitt Move Worldwide, uh, who is a member of the executive committee or was a member of the executive committee is now stepping up into the vice chair role. So, uh, you know, we have those two uh, occupying the two highest positions in our executive committee now and then uh, rounding out the executive committee. Uh, if you don't know, that is our, you know, our, our board of directors essentially. So they set the course and direction for the association. Uh, we have Oded Carmi 
from Deanne Van Lines in Massachusetts here in the US. And he is uh, elected to the governing member at large position, uh, Katarina Steer, our former IAMYP chair uh, from Harsh, the Art of Moving Forward in Zurich. She is now the core member representative at large. And Sheena Kaiser from CCOR is our new chair of the YP management board. And she is going to be assisted in that role by Leonard DeYoung of the Gosling Group. Uh, he is the new vice chair of the YP management board. So we appreciate all of these leaders stepping up and uh, joining us and helping us to take IAM from where it is today and, and bring us to a better place in the future. We, we can't do it without these people. Yeah, and we can't do it without you either. You know, the, um, you the, being the listener, you know, whoever you are, if you want to be part of the leadership of IAM Movers, or IAM rather, get in touch with uh, Julia O'Connor, Julia O at IAMovers.org, and uh, she can talk to you or any of the staff for that matter. If you have someone you, you regularly talk to on staff, let us know if you want to be part of the leadership and, you know, there's always a need for people to take on a role or a task or something like that. So, you know, let us know uh, if you, if that interests you. So Brian, the uh, US DAB task force is hard to work and DAB for those of you who missed it is the domestic asset based movers. These are US companies who own trucks, have staff, have a warehouse maybe, and so that's what uh, domestic uh, asset based is referring to. But we're, uh, it's, it's growing, you know, it's finding its feet, you know, there is a need and uh, this is a member driven uh, effort. And so to me, that's very exciting. You know, sometimes we roll out products or services or programs and it's something that we inside the walls uh, designed and, and build, uh, but this is entirely member driven. And it's been a really interesting ride so far to be in some of these meetings and hear the, the interesting stuff that they're, they're talking about. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we say domestic asset-based movers, we're, you know, here in the U.S., we're talking about those independent movers and those van line agents. And some of these companies are small and some of these companies are quite big. And so I want to, you know, kind of communicate out the value to our worldwide audience, because I think there's, there's a perception there when we talk about this initiative that it, IEM may be focusing too much on the U.S. And so for this discussion, I want to emphasize why this development is not just a positive for our U.S. population, our U.S. membership, but it's a positive development uh, for our global membership. So, you know, the U.S. is the largest moving market in the world. It, there's you know, it's, it's not even close. More people move here, more people move internationally here. And so there are companies in the U.S. that, um, you know, may not have taken a big role in IAM, but are big bookers. And they are starting to come into IAM and taking a bigger role in the association because of this. So if you're a non-U.S. based member of the association, there are new bookers coming into the network. Uh, so that means more business potentially flowing uh, as a result of your IAM membership. The other part of this is more companies will now be covered under the receivable protection program. 
If you don't know what that means is, you know, when you accept business from another company, if they're not an IAM member, they're not covered under the RPP. So this brings in more companies and it protects your receivables if you're doing work for some of these US-based companies. It also gives you more options if you are booking a shipment either to or from the US to find a, a new service provider in a different location. So uh, IAM has about 400 member companies in the US right now. I think through this DAB initiative, we can bring in a lot more new companies here in the US. And that opens up the range of possibilities for you to work with different service providers here in the US and maybe find a company that um, is closer to where your, you know, your client is actually packing their shipment or delivering their shipment. So I think, you know, I, I want to emphasize the positive about this and what it means for all of you, um, uh, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. Obviously, there's a value to these companies who are here in the U.S., but this strengthens the network and makes it even more valuable, makes your membership even more valuable. Uh, in addition, uh, this is, so right now we're doing the U.S. DAB. Well, once we get this model underway for a um, for the network that that's being built we're hoping that we're going to be able to take that infrastructure through which collective action is possible so that you know Carl and I have jobs because we are able to bring all these companies together and create value on top of that and this is what the DAB could do for you and your market if you don't have a national association you know, it, you know, I don't know if there's a national association for India, um, but there's a lot of moving companies there. Oh, and yeah. are there are there opportunities for companies to come together, potentially lobby the government, potentially hold their own events uh, and talk about, you know, issues that are important to them that may not necessarily rise to the level of IAM or other associations, but we can maybe help facilitate that development and, and infrastructure in the future. Yeah, exciting stuff going on. Yep. So we also have uh, new members for October. Um, I didn't count the dots on the map, but there's a whole mess of them, a whole passel of them. Uh, so keep an eye on the IEM website where you can get a list of new members every month. And not only that, you can get a list of prospective members every month. So these are the companies that hopefully the following month, at least aspire to become members. And, and, and you know, the, the listener's role in that is to check and, and make sure that they, uh, that there aren't any co companies joining that constitute kind of a, a credit risk or an ethical risk uh, to, the, to the network. And as a member in good standing, you have the right to object to any, um, prospective member joining the organization. And to date, we have, uh, you know, I think there's a perception out there that IAM just lets everybody in, and that's, that's not the case. We've had uh, more than 30 companies this year who have submitted an application, and it has not moved forward uh, to a, a, a full membership. And some of that is due to objections. So we need your input you have a role in policing your your association and policing your network. So please get engaged on that. Uh, you can find that on the website, like Carl said. Yeah. 
and the alleged debtor list. Uh, these are the companies that are IAM members who are alleged to owe other IAM members uh, money with uh, unsettled debts. Is that, uh, is that something people should be looking at a lot, Brian? No, no, <laughs> don't look at it. It's uh, it's a load of, it's a load of uh, bad. No, it is. Uh, it's Carl can tell you it is the thing that gets the most clicks because it has actionable information right away. If you want to know who's not paying their invoices, allegedly not paying their invoices, because uh, we can't make a judgment on that, but uh, we do have a process through which we come to that decision. That newsletter or that information tells you which companies in the membership are not paying their invoices. It also gives you some insight into which companies have gone out of business, all sorts of inform useful information to help you make proper decisions. Yeah, very important uh, page on the website. And uh, there's, there's a reason we put it down at the bottom of the e-portal. I'm not even going to lie to you. It's so that you'll go look for it because that's, a, like Brian said, the thing that gets the most clicks. If we put it at the bottom, we know you're going to see the other stories. Hopefully you'll find other stuff that's interesting there. Uh, so it's sort of like a fish hook, baited fish hook down at the bottom. So we do have some member news also, this issue. Uh, new inbound move manager joins AMR International Relocation. So AMR International Relocation has announced the appointment of Steve Zhang as inbound move manager at its Shanghai headquarters. So if you would like to have your company's news in the member news of the ePortal newsletter and possibly even have Brian and I uh, uh, talk about it, you know, send it to me, carl.weaver at iamovers.org. And I'll also, I, I thought I had put this in the ePortal, but I'll put a notice in the ePortal saying the very, the very same thing so that it'll be easy when you go say, go down to the member news and you say, they printed that news, but they didn't print mine. Why not? Well, you didn't send it to us possibly. So hopefully it'll be an easy way uh, for you to remember to send us your news. Totally agree. We need to hear from you. It, yeah. You know, yeah, we have a we have a distribution channel. You guys have news. We know you have news. You're hiring people. You're you're implementing new software systems. You're expanding to new locations. Let us know. Um, we want to we want to share what's going on with our members. You know, some of the presidential information is a bit outdated. Uh, at this point, we know that um, uh, Joe Biden is the president elect and uh, uh, but I, I would encourage everybody who uh, to, to maybe listen to that because there's a lot of really good information about what the election means for our industry. What changes will happen in Washington that may affect immigration, that may affect labor uh, regulations that will affect the, uh, the, the entities or the agencies that oversee our industry. So if you're looking to have a better sense of, of how that's going to impact your company, this is information you won't get on CNN or NBC or Fox. This is really hyper-focused at our industry and lets you know what's coming down the pike and how you can orient your business in this new political paradigm. Yeah, and, and even though the elections are obviously over, uh, and we, like Brian said, we know who the president-elect is, the U.S. Senate is still in flux. So right now, the, the Republicans have 49 seats for the next senatorial term, 
and the Democrats have 48. And there are two seats in Georgia that are still up for grabs. And that is uh, going to be a runoff January 15th, I think. Sometime in January. Yeah. yeah, sometime in January. I can't remember when. But so, you're right, Carl. You know, the whole U.S. Senate will, uh, the control of the U.S. Senate will uh, hinge on the, those election results. So it's not over. Yeah, this is an interesting time to be in the U.S. and watch our political system. I'm, I'm not going to say anything more about that. Define interesting. <laughs> uh, well, you can see I have, I, I have these bald patches in my head you know, is where I've been pulling out my hair. Well, Carl, I, I appreciate the opportunity again to come on the podcast and talk through all of this uh, information and news we have for the members. So uh, thank you and uh, take, us, take us home. All right. Thanks for joining us again, Brian. And uh, thank you, wonderful listeners, for spending a, an hour or 15 minutes. I, I don't know. Time just flies when I'm talking to Brian. Uh, thanks for joining us, and we will talk to you next time. So, Brian, that's another week of the ePortal discussion. What else do we have to talk about? Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, the last thing I'll plug is if you, if you missed our uh, post-U.S. election roundup, I'd encourage you to go on to I Am Learning and listen to that. It's also available on the podcast feed. So I'm joined today with by uh, IAM's president, Chuck White, and IAM's director of government and military uh, relations, Daniel Bradley, and we're going to talk about the global household goods contract. So gentlemen, thank you for joining me and uh, tell me what's going on. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to let Dan probably talk about, but I mean, what the latest thing that has gone on is um, the fact that uh, GAO has finally ruled on two protests uh, in reference to the contract award. The contract award has been pulled back. Um, and, and so Dan has done an exhaustive uh, reading of the GAO findings that have been just released. And I, I think Dan's a lawyer because he obviously understands it because I sure as heck don't. So, so Dan, uh, why don't you give the folks an update on uh, what you believe is coming out of these uh, responses from GAO? Yeah, I'm uh, happy to do that. And I'm, I'm not a lawyer and I don't play one on TV either. So, um, but the- but you, you stayed in the Holiday Inn Express last night. Yeah, that's true. The Government Accountability Office did uh, come out with their findings on the, the uh, Global House of Goods contract uh, protests. They sustained a number of the elements of those protests. Uh, those protests were filed by Connected Global Solutions and uh, Home Safe Alliance. And uh, you know those are two partnership teams uh, that also bid on the contract. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a number of things there that the, the protests uh, raised that were sustained. And Can you, uh, real quickly, I'm sorry to interrupt. Can you define the term sustained so that everyone understands that? Yeah, so my understanding, right, of a, a sustained protest, meaning that they found reason to agree with the protesters and uh, have gone back to what they call the agency, which is Transcom or the DOD, to say, hey, we, they raised these issues and we agree with them that there are some potential issues here. So they sustained that protest as opposed to uh, denying the protest and uh, uh, moving out in that way. So there were um, as I say, a, a kind of a, a number of uh, different areas that that were raised. Um, they they 
protested the contracting officer's determination of the awardee's responsibility, and they sustained that. And uh, that was a protest, I think, on, on both uh, of the protesters. And that really, for me, from my kind of quick reading, just means that, um, you know, there were issues with uh, some of the, uh, either the, the parent, potentially the parent of ARC, the, uh, the winning bidder, uh, or some of their affiliates underneath that umbrella with, the, with their parent organization, uh, where there were some um, um, wrongdoing from previous cases that, that really didn't concern ARC, but, but uh, concerned some of the affiliates associated with them under the parent. And um, in the evaluation of that by the contracting officer, um, they felt like it was fine because uh, ARC basically stated that um, those organizations would have nothing to do with the performance of the contract, but it appeared to GAO anyway that um, that the contracting officer did or may have provided um, some credit to ARC in the evaluation um, for the use of the entire network associated with their parent company and all of their affiliates. So on the one hand saying um, we're not going to, um, th those people won't be, or those companies won't be a part of our solution, but on the other hand, potentially um, Transcom giving them credit for um, saying that that entire a network was available for the performance of the contract. So that was that was one. Um, you know, there was a protest associated with uh, what they again called the agency, the DOD, conducting misleading discussions um, about the protesters' total evaluated price. So there was some conversation in one of the protests that um, that one of the protesters was told in, in a number of times that their overall price seemed high um, and, and not too high because that was specifically called out in the document, but, but appeared high compared to market research. And um, that protester's concern was when the award of the, pro, or the award of the contract came out, the winning bidders um, award was higher than them across the board. So in their minds, why was I told that my, my award was too high, or not too high, was high um, consistently, kind of forcing them back to the table to sharpen their pencil and find uh, savings other places when the overall eventual winning uh, bidder was actually higher higher costs. So that was a, a protest that was sustained. And, and, and significantly higher costs from what we understand over the life of the contract, the, uh, the award winner the initial award winner may have been as high as two billion dollars over the life full life of the contract higher than some of the other bidders so as you've indicated price if i'm being told your price is too high based on market research and then someone it, it, another bidder wins the bid at a price that's a couple of billion dollars higher than what I did. What, why are you telling me this and not telling the other entity that eventually won? Right. Well, price is one issue, but, uh, and, and I don't know all the companies that were you know, bidding and everything, but uh, another issue I know they consider is um, the ability, the perceived ability to carry out all the work, right? So like I couldn't I couldn't bid on that say Carl company and and say it's going to be like twenty billion dollars over ten years, 
um, and get get it because I don't have the infrastructure. Is there uh, ever a time when they take bids like this and say, well, we we know this guy can do it, so he can charge a little bit more. Um, this other company, we're maybe like 90% sure they can do it, so we need them to be a little bit cheaper. Um, no, Carl, I think it's a, it, there is a best value trade-off there where they don't, they're not specifically making an award based on technically acceptable low cost, right? That's one methodology that's used sometimes in, in acquisition and contracting. This was a best value trade-off. And so I think anybody that they're evaluating, they, they score them based on their ability, you know, their network and their ability to carry out the business. So that I think that's part of their, their grading in the acquisition process. And they certainly would have to have the capability in the um, um, the team's mind that that's assessing the contracts to say, yeah, these they can do it. Um, it. It sounds like for these four, it was probably more of an assessment of they can do it, but to to what level? And then is there a trade-off with the cost that we're willing to uh, we're willing to pay? So in their in their original award, it sounds like they they looked at what Arc provided. They felt like um, as that um, award team felt like. There were things that ARC provided that was good for the customer that they really liked. And because of that, they felt like it was, it was enough. Um, there were enough strengths in their proposal that they were willing to pay more money for that. And, and yeah, get, I, I, yo, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I, th I think that what we're talking about here for the listeners is a, a best value procurement. And if people are involved in the current DOD program, there, there's a waiting and that waiting is known, waiting as in not W-A-I-T, but W-E-I-G-H-T. And that waiting in the current program is a best value mix of 70% based on customer satisfaction and 30% based on price. I'm going to ask Dan to talk a little bit about that because I think this question of the best value waiting was also raised in some of the protests. And, you know, can you, can you talk to that a little bit, Dan? Uh, I can a little bit. I think, um, and before I had read through this, these two reports, one of which is 28 pages long from GAO and the other one's 32 pages long based on each of the protests. Um, I, I wasn't aware that there was specifically called out what the, what the waiting was. It, it sounds like in the document that it's uh, what they call a, um, um, an equal, a, a fairly equal trade-off. It's almost an equal weight to, to the strengths of the contract and their proposal and the price. Um, but they are, um, so, so kind of considered equally is kind of how it was um, stated in the, um, the writing of the protest response. However, you know, it allows the, the bidders or the, the agency, the DOD, to choose somebody more expensive if there's enough strength in their proposal that would allow them to say that it's, it's worth going higher for. So there is kind of an equal, it was called a kind of an equal best value. Um, I'm forgetting the terminology in my head right now, but, uh, but there's that best value trade-off to look at, um, you know, each of the main scored factors were, were based on whether they were weak, whether they were adequate, you know, whether they were good, whether they were strong, those, those kinds of terms. And I, I'll, I'll find them shortly if I, uh, if I got that way wrong, but, um, and then that's evaluated against their price. So um, that's the best value trade-off. How much are they willing to pay for the strengths, um, uh, for the strengths of the programs that, that each of the bidders kind of put forward. 
Is that what you're looking for, Chuck? Yeah, that, that is what I'm looking for. But in the protests, did that was that called into question? And so they, if, so, if so, how did GAO respond to that? Yeah, so they, they basically, um, overall, I would say that they didn't have a problem with the best value trade-off, but that based on the weakness that they felt was in the um, evaluation of other certain factors in the protest, um, that they found they sustained that portion of the protest as well. Um, so, you know, they, the weight, one of the, here's one of the things I'll, I'll read. It says the weight accorded to the technical capability factor and price in the best value trade-off analysis was reasonable, right? So they didn't really have a problem with how Transcom and the, the uh, um, award team kind of looked at that. Um, the allegation that the best value trade-off analysis was flawed is sustained because of the errors identified in the agency's underlying evaluation. So all the other pieces of the protests that they sustained, they felt like gave them enough reason to say that there's, there might be problem with the underlying scoring because we saw you know, some of these other issues in the protest. So they, they were comfortable, I think, overall in the best value trade-off and how that was looked at, but they were uncomfortable in how they scored that to get to that point. And that's why yeah. they sustained so, that protest. So what I think I'm hearing you saying, I look at one aspect of an evaluation and I score one entity at one level and I score another entity at a different level and that wasn't consistent maybe is that the right word i think in some respects so yes that that is right so i'll give you one example i read in the report which is that um i believe it was home safe but don't don't uh, quote me on that um were found to have a strength in one portion of their contract they were given credit for that say like in the operational evaluation uh, ARC had a, a very similar strength in that same same area. They were given also a strength credit for that in the operational area, but in the grading, they were also given a strength under that item in the IT area. So, th so essentially for the same thing, they were given uh, credit for a strength in their proposal in two different areas. And HomeSafe was only given credit for that in one area. And so they highlighted that to GAO and said, hey, this is an uneven evaluation for something that they got credit for when we should have gotten the same credit, but we didn't. And that, um, they, they did sustain that portion that, that uh, the GAO found enough issue with things like that, that they said, hey, yeah, we see some unequal evaluation here. And therefore things like that, then while they were comfortable with the best value methodology that was used, they, they felt like the underlying scores that got them there might've been problematic. Can I, can we go through, uh... The, the four finalists and talk about who, obviously the award winner, two protesters, and then one entity that uh, was in the final four but chose not to respond with a protest. So we've got, we've got four groups. Can you go through, first off, who won the original uh, award and then and who is part of, because all of these are consortiums, they're all groups of companies with a named entity at the top uh, uh, for uh, the actual bidder. And then, but they use these other parts of their consortium to support their technical abilities. Um, can, can you talk about the award winner who, who has now become just another bidder and um, who's included in that? 
the two protesters, what they, uh, what the name of that group is as uh, a, an entity and who's contained in that, and then the fourth entity as well. Okay, and you, you can probably chime in as I'm doing this off my head uh, to sure. keep these straight, but the award, the original award winner was American Roll-On Roll-Off Corporation, so uh, ARC. Uh, their partners were um, Suddeth, Unigroup, uh, Deloitte, and, and Pacia. And you know, Atlas. And, and Atlas, I'm sorry, I knew I was missing one there. I, I thought I was an Atlas. So that, that was the original award winner. Um, the protesters were Home Safe Alliance, and that is uh, KBR, Kellogg, Brown and Root, and um, uh, Tier One is an, um, a partner. That's correct, that's right. And then the other was the Connected Global Solutions, which was uh, Crowley Logistics, and they had partnerships with uh, National and Interstate. Um, and TMM. TMM. Um, as and, well as agility. And agility. And then uh, server was the fourth bidder, and I'm not sure about their partnership. They really, they're, the President name Alliance, entity that? on that was APL, Major Steamship Line, uh, Serva, which is a, uh, a holding company for North American and Allied van lines, as well as IAL, International Auto Logistics, was part of that team. And they are the current uh, holder of a transcom contract under the personally owned vehicle POV. So yeah, obviously huge groups. And, and some of the names that are in there really interest me because all of the lead named entities, that would be APL, that would be Crowley Logistics, that would be Kellogg, Brown and Root, KBR, and um, uh, ARC, are all not, re they're all transportation related defense contractors somehow, but not household good companies. Now they have aligned themselves with some, with the most significant household good companies in the DO, in the current DOD program. But, you know, we, we see a lot of big name defense contractors in this, KBR, Crowley, uh, Agility, uh, Deloitte. I mean, these are huge names throughout the entire government DOD sector that are not necessarily related to, in any way, to, to household goods. So I find that interesting. But, you know, when a contract has a ceiling on it, stated ceiling of $20 billion over the life of the contract, that interests anybody. So. And, it, and it takes some, some knowledge and experience and expertise um, to bid on a contract that size and understand the meaning behind the acquisition uh, rules and requirements and regulations. So I don't think that's, you know, it's not surprising. Frankly, again, most of uh, the DOD's TSPs, transportation service providers, are people who operate certainly in the DOD in a tender and tariff environment and then moving to an acquisition of federal acquisition regulation far related contract is a significant step in a different direction with different requirements. So, you know, that there are some of these major players and other government contractors um, as for, as you say, Chuck, the size of that type of award is not surprising. Um, yeah. That's the kind of expertise you kind of need to just, you know, wade through the requirements associated with such a bid like that. And, um, and I don't know how far Carl wanted to go with this, but I would just kind of say as well, the, 
um, it looks like now the, those four bidders, even though there were apparently seven original bidders, those, those four bidders get an opportunity to provide a new proposal to Transcom, uh, do that by the 2nd of December and um, do oral presentations because that was a part of one of the protests as well that was sustained that uh, Transcom didn't keep a good record of oral presentations, therefore didn't believe uh, the protesters and uh, GAO felt that how could they really evaluate the oral presentations when they really didn't keep a good record of those. And then oral presentations in January and then an award by sometime in June, potentially again on the, on the next time around. So that's- Yeah, Ju that's June of 2020. June of 2021. So you, you're right. And that, that was exactly what I wanted to ensure that we covered. So we had an award. That award has been removed in response to the GAO prote protest and GAO's uh, sustainment of a number of the issues. So we went back to the drawing board. As you said, you gave the, the, the key dates in the timeline to December 2nd, first week of January, an award in, in June. So can you talk, talk about implementation? What, what do we know about if this timeline continues, and we've seen slippages of timelines since this very first got started, but if the current timeline continues, when do you believe the actual beginning of the implementation of the contract, i.e. moving shipments, will take place under the GHC? Yeah, so if they follow the original, you know, solicitation, performance work statement, all of those kind of things, there's then, after that award in June, there's a nine-month transitions phase, and that puts you into the, you know, not being able to start until probably the March-April timeframe, if my math is, is correct. So, um, and again, you know, if, if they were to stick with that, say, first shipments, 25% of the, of the domestic shipments moving in April, of 2022, um, you know, then it's 25% uh, and then 25 more percent in May and another 25% in June, another 25% in July, and then you got 100% domestic and then a transition to the international the same way, 25% for each month for four months until it takes over 100%. The idea that, that anybody would want to implement that right at the start of peak season um, is, is, uh, ludicrous as far as i'm concerned and so so you know does that again pure speculation right but does that draw us then into maybe the first shipment doesn't move on the domestic side until september or october and then you know 25 percent of the domestic market each month maybe september october november december and then maybe january of 23 for the first international shipments um no way to know that right now but certainly doesn't seem too far out of the realm of possibilities when you yeah. think of the impact of trying to implement this type of a huge contract um, at the start of a peak season. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's really critical. So for our members of IAM, many of which who are international TSPs, it appears that where we were thinking that implementation of the GHC was scheduled to happen in 2021, we may be looking at some point in 2023 at this point before we see at least on the international side, any implementation under the GHC banner. So, and as you and I have talked about, Dan, that is if everything falls into place perfectly and doesn't include things like additional protest or the possibility of legal action in the court of federal claims. Again, 
This is such a large contract. And the norm in defense contracting is protest, protest, protest. So we, it, it's going to be very interesting to see if there, there have to be grounds for protest, but if there are any protests that would be looming in the future or other types of court action that could even further delay implementation. So it's going to be really interesting to follow. And I do believe that uh, most of the international TSPs in particular have got a, a little injection of lifeblood to make them feel as if they have minimal security here for the next year and a half or, or so before they have to start looking over their shoulders again. So it's going to be really interesting to follow. So people need to stay tuned to these podcasts because we're going to be doing, uh, you know, some regular updates on where we see uh, GHC at that point in time and what the timeline looks like and what new information we can provide to the membership. And so there were a number of other protests that were either sustained or denied, um, you know, facets within that, those protests that you can, you know, probably search online at the GAO site and find those, uh, that, that uh, overall document if you wanna well, we need to get Carl to make sure that we are posting the documentation on iamovers.org website so that people can easily uh, find those protests if they want to delve down and, and in case they you know, want some light reading for bedtime because this is about as much legalese as anybody can take uh, uh, at any one time. Yeah, we can certainly post all that stuff on the website and uh, it'll obviously, you know, so you guys know, and I think most of our members know when it gets posted on the website, it also goes out in the news feed. So yeah. members or not just members, anyone can su subscribe to our news feeds. Right. So if anybody has questions about that, you can email me at carl.weaver at iamovers.org. So, okay. Anything guys, else thanks. you need? I'm sorry, anything I didn't mean to interrupt us? you, Mr. President, speak. No, 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 I was just wondering if you needed anything else from us. <laughs> um, no, I, I think this is a great start and I appreciate you joining us. And uh, I guess I'll see you guys on Monday and hope you have a great weekend. All right, thanks Carl, right, Carl. appreciate thanks. it. And, and for any of the listeners, look for more updates. If you have questions, make sure you reach out to Carl so that we can try to address those questions on the podcast. Uh, this is an exciting future for IAM as we're more virtual, as we're more digital, as, as we are online and available to anyone who has an interest in uh, any topic. We, we can make sure we can try to cover that for you. We want to hear from you. You can leave us a voice message at anchor.fm slash IAMovers slash message. I will also put the link in the show notes so you can click on it right there. Please subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to the IAM Podcast. If there's ever anything you need from IAM, you can contact us at membership at iamovers.org or contact us by going to the contact us page on the IAM website at iamovers.org. 
Thank you for joining us and we will talk to you next time.